I'm going to take my title this morning from verse 7 where Paul makes the conclusion from the first six verses of chapter 8 that we read from. Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. The word abound is to overflow. If you would picture a glass of water that's full, but then water's overflowing the side of the glass. That's the word picture for abound here. The word grace, Paul is, we remember, is speaking about a gift. He is speaking of the collection that he is asking the church at Corinth to take up, for which they were forward a year ago. They began, but they didn't complete the task. He's calling on them to overflow in this grace also, the grace of giving, almsgiving, or giving to the poor. So we'll entitle this message, Learning to Be Liberal. It's not a bad thing here. Liberal means generous. That's what Paul is calling on the church of Corinth to be, generous. Learning to be liberal, and that heading will be with these three things under it. First, passing the test of love. If we're to learn to be liberal, we've got to pass the test. Second, finishing the task of liberality. And then thirdly, pursuing equality in liberality. And I'm sure I've got your attention on that last point, if nothing else, right? Pursuing equity in giving. What does that mean? Verse 8. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, churches of Macedonia, verses 1 through 6, and to prove or to test the sincerity, the realness, the genuineness of your love. So Paul is going to give them a test of their liberality. So they need to pass the test if they're going to give in such a way that Paul is calling on them to give. The word test is, or prove is dokumazo, which is used concerning metal. So gold was tested in the ore form with fire. If you want to know if you've got gold in this mass, this chunk of rock, you put it in the crucible and you heat it and the, sli- the, the ore melts. Any false gold in there, it melts. But the real gold, the genuine, the sincere gold does not melt because it's pure. That's one way to test a metal like gold. A second way is you've seen in maybe old western movies where a cowboy will put a gold coin in his teeth and bite it. That's a genuine test. Fake gold, a fake coin, will do one of two things when you bite it. Either it's too soft and you almost bite right through it. That doesn't pass the test. Or it's too hard. When you bite on it, there's no impression of your teeth on the coin at all. But if it's true, real, sincere gold, it'll leave a little impression. How do you test love? What's the test that Paul is going to give? Well, first it's negative. He says, I will not give you a mandate. What a test of your love. Now, commandments in the Bible are good. They're all over the Bible. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, if if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So surely a test of love is commandment keeping, but is that the only true test 
Because we find in the Bible there were people, there are people that conform to commands, but there's no love. So keeping commandments, according to Jesus, is a test of love. But what if there are no commandments? Right? Suppose today, right here, right now, God spoke to us and said, I'm lifting every command. No more commands to come to church. No more commands to give your money. No more mandates about your time. No more mandates about service. It's all lifted. And he said, I want to see the real you. Or children. I'm not picking on you children. I know what my response would have been to this question. Suppose your parents tomorrow says, I'm lifting all rules. All, every law I've ever given in this house, it's gone. You want to spend eight hours on your iPhone? iPhone? Do it. You want to stay up all night? Be my guest. You don't want to clean your room? No problem. Every rule, every mandate, every command has been lifted. I just want to see the real you. What would it be? Would you still come? Would you still give of your time and money? See, the question Paul has for the church, would you still love? Is that why you're here? Because of these external commands that are just forcing their way on your life. And if it weren't for those commands, if those commands were lifted this morning, you would see the real me because I would bolt. Well, there's something deeply wrong with the heart like that, isn't there? We know that. So Paul negatively is going to give them a test and say, I'm not mandating anything here. I just want to know about your love. Would you pass the test? How is it with you this morning? Would you pass that test? Or is what, what is keeping you here, what's moving you on is an external command rather than an internal love? Now rest assured, because we still live in the flesh, we need commands. <clears throat> commands are good for us. Commands are one of the tests of love because when we're keeping, keeping them, Jesus says, there, there's love there. And so I'm not negating that. But Paul gives a test, a test of really our liberty and our freedom, right? Paul really gave this test to Philemon, didn't he? In that small epistle where he's going to encourage Philemon to receive back Onesimus, that runaway slave who had been begotten in Paul's bonds in Rome by the providence of God. He's now a believer and Paul is going to tell Onesimus, you go back to Philemon, and you be reconciled. So he writes a letter, and he says, Philemon, I could enjoin you to that which is convenient. I could command you as an apostle, yet for love's sake. What a motive, right? And Paul would have been right to command him, because it was right. It was something he should do in receiving him back. But the whole short letter is on this premise Yet for love's sake, I'm asking you, Paul the aged, a servant, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I suppose Philemon's heart melted with love. Beloved, what is your motive? Where's the real you? Would you pass the test of genuine giving? Or do you need, do you must have commands? 
or you wouldn't give if it weren't for that demand. That mandate of God says, hey, this is a commandment. Give. So Paul first gives them a negative test. First, I'm not going to speak by commandment. I want you to act freely. As Jesus did when he said in John chapter 10. Other sheep which I have which are not of this fold, them I must bring also. And then he said, I lay down my life, no man takes it from me. I lay it down on myself, I'll take it up again. This commandment I received of my Father. Now, is Jesus acting in freedom or mandates when He says, I've been commanded to lay my life down? But then He says, I'm doing it freely. No one will take my life from me. I will give my life freely and I will take it back freely. But I've received command from my Father. The must of Jesus is the must of love. That's why God loves Him. Because he wasn't acting just on external mandate. He was acting on internal love. You will never be more free in your total existence than when you meet a command outside of you with a heart that's already willing, already ready to do what the command says out of an internal love for who God is. So Jesus gave Himself freely. He received this commandment of God the Father because it met with a heart that didn't say, well, if you command it, I guess i got to do it. If you say, I've got to be at church, well, that's where I'll be. If you say, I've got to die for these people, well, let's get on with it. No, He made it clear the Father's love for Him because He freely put His hands on the cross. He freely held out His arms so they could chain Him. He freely took every blow on His back and every spit in His face out of love. You will never be more free than when commands meet hearts of love. What will heaven be like? I suppose there may be commands there, but do you need a command in heaven? Will you need to be told? Will you need the chore list in heaven? Clean up your room. Make up your bed. Brush your teeth. Get up at 8 a.m. Maybe there'll be commands. I suppose we'll pass right by the chore list and just freely do the work of heaven out of love. Love. So this voluntary, willing offer, which Paul is not mandated, this is above and beyond the, the, the regular giving this was a call to, to give to the poor, which was not a regular, regular uh, giving in church life. Paul says first, I want you to pass the test, so I'm not giving you a mandate. I want to see if your love is real. I want to see if you really love Jesus. Now here's the positive, which connects with it. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others. Again, Macedonian churches, he spoke of them. And to prove the test, the sincerity of your love, because you know. Now here's the positive side. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this Christological passage is deposited in a context of giving money. 
you know the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the motive. I'm not, I'm not commanding you here. Commands are good, but not doing it. I want you to think about grace. You know the grace, the giving of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes. He became poor so that you all, through His poverty, might be wealthy. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we just talked in John 10 about His freedom. Why did He do this? Out of love. He loved the gift that the Father gave Him of the sheep, His bride. He loved the Father's glory. He was motivated. Freely to do what? Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Now we've spoken of this verse that the wealth of Jesus must be his pre-incarnation. Because Jesus was never wealthy on the earth. He became poor, literally, Being born in a manger, born of poor parents, having a poor occupation, never owning a home, as far as Scripture says, often sleeping in Garden of Gethsemane, only had enough funds that was in the bag that Judas Iscariot carried, just enough for daily needs. He became poor. So when was he rich? He was rich in eternity. So how did he move from wealth to riches? Not by moving from being God to not being God. We know that. In fact, this text reminds us of Philippians chapter 2, which speaks of his moving from riches to poverty. And how did he do that? He didn't become poor by subtraction, we'll say. He didn't become poor by, by giving up his deity. He became poor by taking on something he had never experienced. And the word here is poverty. He had never been poor, literally, but he had never been poor by being a human being. He became a man. He made himself of no reputation by taking on something, not subtracting something, Paul would say. He emptied himself not by... Removing something, but by taking on something. He took on the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of a man. And the wonders of Jesus Christ becoming poor for us is that He becomes a man forever. Not temporarily. He takes on humanity forever. That's astounding. He just doesn't put it on like a suit and then take it off again. He is a man today reigning at the right hand of the Father out of love. He gave Himself willingly. So Paul takes this Christological passage. It's it's also soteriologically, which means salvation. This is how salvation comes to us. If He had never done that, no one would be saved. And he drops it as a motivation to test the love of the Corinthians. In other words, are you being motivated by a mandate? Which we'd have to say at times, we all are. Would you admit to that? I got to do this, I'll, I'll do it. Yes. But how greater 
the motivation of love, grace, the giving of Jesus Christ for you, that you, through His poverty, might be made rich. And what is that? You've come into the riches of His glory. The riches of of salvation, the riches of eternity with God are yours in Christ. And so Paul will use this passage to, to motivate them to what? To be liberal givers. See, if we're to learn to be liberal, we have commands, but that's not the ultimate motivation. It's that commands meet with a heart that loves Jesus and that sees and that knows the wonders of His grace. In other words, grace is still just as amazing to us as it first was. We are filled with the wonder that Jesus would give Himself, would become a human being, and then one day actually we would see Him in His flesh as the apostles did. Touch my flesh, see the prints in my hands and the gash in my side. Will the gash not still be there? as an eternal symbol of His love for you? And so, to pass the test of liberality, to learn to be liberal, is to learn to rest in, to see, to trust in Jesus Christ. And even when we're met with commands all over the Bible, we want to be motivated by what? The grace, the giving, the love of our Lord Jesus Christ by faith, in Christ in such a way that we're learning liberality. We're, we're learning. Because that's, that is something we learn, isn't it? It's something we grow in. Because money so often have a grip on our affections, can it not? It's so easy for money and material possessions and created things to capture and have a grip on our hearts to the degree that our time, our resources, our, our giving, even in occasions where it's excess, not by command, we say, well, somebody else can do that. You ever said that? I mean, that person is doing okay, right? Or it's their turn. Are you passing the test of liberality? Are you real? Are you genuine? You really love Jesus Christ. All right, number two. Verse 10. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient, which means profitable for you, who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which you possess, which you have. Next, finishing the task of liberality. All right, if we're passing the test of love, Paul says, now do it, right? Perform the voluntary task that I'm not mandating out of the love of Christ. Now complete the task of liberality. We need to learn to finish the task. They started a year ago. Paul had given instruction, and they were willing. They were forward. That means they were inclined. They said, well, you know, this is a good thing. I I think we ought to do this. Something happened in that year where they never finished the task. We could say they had good intentions. There's an idiom about that, isn't there? Where good intentions are paved to, to go to a certain place, right? Not saying that's biblical, but even humanity has recognized that good intentions get you nowhere. Now, Paul is not 
condemning their good intentions, but the point is, is that you, you started, but it never got to the completion. So now he's calling them to finish the task of liberality, be a good finisher. Now, in basketball, the follow-through is everything. Right? You can have the right mechanics of a shot, and if you don't follow through with an extended elbow, with a wrist that's flipped in position, it's not going to work. Right? Or a good finisher. A finisher that finishes good is someone that they start to dribble toward the basket and they're driving. They're dribbling well. They're moving down the, the, to the goal well. Maybe a sidestep crossover, maneuver. They finish well because they protect the ball so that it's not stolen or blocked and they make the basket. They call that a good finisher. Now, a finisher that's not good, that's the person when they start driving, you go, uh-oh, this is not going to finish well. They start off well, they dribble, crossover, ball is stolen, blocked, throw it up in the air, make a crazy shot, and you'll hear people say, he or she's just not a good finisher. Are you a good finisher? Or you just have all these good intentions, good intentions, but you never drive and make the layup? Now, why didn't they finish is the question. That, that's, that's the thing we need to know. Well, distractions, time, inertia, cares, troubles, all kinds of reasons. But I want you to focus on one word here that I think suggests something to us, and then we'll try to show how that's true. Paul says in verse 10 again, And herein I give my advice, for this is profitable for you. How? I mean, in accounting, this is just sheer loss. I've got so much money, I'm going to take my abundance and give it away. That moves from the profit column to the loss column. He says, no, when you give liberally, you're going to be a gainer. This is expedient for you. So I'm suggesting to you here that the reason they're not good finishers at this point is because they didn't see the profit in giving. They didn't see the profit. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to give you four reasons why I think that Paul is saying, if you want to be a good finisher, you don't just start with good intentions. You need something that brings you to the finish line, something that brings you to the basket, something that's going to be profitable for you, even though you're, you're releasing your funds to other people. Four reasons. One is the example of the Macedonians. Paul said, you were forward a year ago, but you didn't complete it. But the churches of Macedonia, he said, what? I'm speaking by the occasion of the forwardness of others. They were heartfelt. They were devoted. They had good intentions, but they followed through. How? Because of the abundance of their joy. Are you starting to see the picture? Love is an overflow of your joy for the good of others. Why didn't they finish? Because it wasn't profiting them. The love of verse 9, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't captivating them with joy that would cause them to finish the task. So maybe they said, I need this money for something else, or I want to buy this, or I don't have time, or the cares of the world, the lust of other things. We don't know exactly from the text. Well, we do know Paul said, this is profitable for you, just like it was a profit 
for the churches of Macedonia, and I'm using them and their forwardness as an example of what? Their abundant joy. Second reason I say this. Paul, and this is review for us, Paul is a helper of their joy. 2 Corinthians 1.24. So he says this in the same book, the same epistle. So when he says, I'm trying to profit you, he means I'm trying to help your joy. Because you're not finishing the task because your joy is being sidetracked to something else. Now the first letter will bear that out. Just read it with that in mind. So Paul is helper of their joy because by faith they stand. He doesn't have dominion over their faith. He knows by faith they stand. So everything he writes, everything he does, everything he preaches, everything he ministers, everything that he is, is for their joy, including the collection for the poor saints of Jerusalem. If we never finish, the love of God is not being experienced as joy. When love is overflowing, it's overflowing as joy. Again, verse 3, or verse 2 of chapter 8. Reason number 3. Love is designed to profit you. 1 Corinthians 13. If you give your goods to feed the poor. Now that's what Paul is calling for here. But in chapter 13 of the first letter, he says, If I bestow all my goods like the Macedonians, to feed the poor. And if I give my body to be burned. Now, wouldn't you say that's love? If somebody says, give me a definition of love. I'd say if somebody gave all their goods to feed the poor. That is a loving person. Now, note this, Paul says, and you don't have love? It profits you nothing. That is astounding. How can I love and not have love? How can I give my whole being for someone in a sacrifice and there be no love in it? Because it wasn't profiting me. By design, God's love for you is to be profit. If it's not, it's not love. Or it's not faith. Right? You all heard of the NFL player? Uh, Damar Hamlin, I think of his name. I've heard he's a Christian. Been praying for him. Many people praying for him. He's recovered. When he went to the hospital, or the day of, he has a, a charity for him. disadvantaged youth to, to collect money to give them toys. They collected millions of dollars. Wouldn't you say that's love? Maybe. Maybe not. Depends if they're profiting from what? The love of God. Because if it's not a faith, it's sin, right? So we can love, we can give money and it not be love because it's not profitable to me. In other words, it's not the overflow of joy in God. Therefore, we are not loving. This is a God-centered definition, not man-centered. Now, you and I would say that's loving. And it's not for me to figure out what was going on in their heart. You know, I'm thankful, this outpouring of love, and you can say that without saying, you can't call that love. <laughs> but we know all of it's not true love. What did Paul say? I'm testing the reality and the genuineness of your love. Are you profiting when you give away money? Are you having joy? If you're not, 
Your motive is man-centered and not God-centered. Now, beloved, how often do we do that? Often, right? Aren't you glad we have a Savior? (laughs) He died for my unloving, selfish deeds. But I don't want to stay there, right? So this is not, hey, get it worked out, you don't go to heaven. No, He died for that. Finished. Done. But I want to be liberal. So it's got to profit me. Like it did the, the churches of Macedonia. Fourth reason. We are finishers only with joy. The Bible declares this over and over. You don't finish without it, right? Wherefore, there, wherefore beloved, uh, Hebrews 12.1, Seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. That's Hebrews chapter 11. All those people are witnesses of grace through faith and finishing the task, like building an ark. <laughs> I just think, boy, I, and there's no way I could finish that. Oh, by grace through faith you could. See? All of the examples, the great cloud of witnesses are saying, we finished. How? By grace through faith. They are cheering you on today through Scripture. So let us lay aside the weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and what? Finisher. He's the ultimate finisher. Nobody finishes except by the finisher. Nobody makes the basket except by the finisher. Now when Jesus has authored your faith and finished your faith, what is that faith doing about producing love? So when Jesus is going to be the finisher of your faith, that means your faith is going to finish with patience and you're going to keep running the race. That's what the book of Hebrews is is, is about. Now, Jesus' Savior is then, in verse 3, turned to be Jesus the example. And what does it say? Who for the joy set before Him, He finished, endured the cross, despising the shame. How did He finish? With joy set before Him. That's how you will finish. Run with patience or endurance. Finish the race. It's a marathon. Because Jesus is going to be your finisher. You can have joy in goods. Isn't that glorious? You can enjoy that food and you can enjoy the comfort of that car. In fact, I do. But when it is ultimate, you will shut down your compassion from a brother that has needs because your goods have now become idolatrous and God's love is not overflowing in joy in your heart. So whatever deeds you do are not really true deeds of love because God's not in it. And John tells us, now John's the apostle of love. John tells us in the second chapter, the reason is, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. At that moment, it's not in him as it should be. It's not in him as the overflow of joy. Why? I'm in love with my goods and the world. How then is John going to help us open up the floodgates of compassion for those that are in need with our goods, with our surpluses, by perceiving the love of God, knowing it, 
It's just one statement. He laid down his life for you. Do you still relish the wonders of Jesus' love for you? See, that's the contrast. This is how we perceive God's love. He laid down a life for, for us, His life. We should lay down our lives for others. We should give our goods. I can't give my goods. Why? I'm not relishing that God would die for someone that is wretched as I am. I'm not amazed with His grace. In fact, I expect it. I think I have a right to it. I think He should love me. So Paul is telling us, based on the four reasons I, give you, I gave you, and I, I'd encourage you to go, go look at that yourself, that the reason they were not good finishers, at least at this point, is because something had captivated their hearts. We can look at the first epistle and see that. And it wasn't a prophet. So he turns to the forwardness of the churches of Macedonia and says, look at the overflow of their love, that even with very little, they were loving. They were genuine. They were sincere. And so now Paul calls on them, not by command, but by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, to love in a way that's profitable for them spiritually. That when they give their goods to feed the poor, that charity is profit. Because the love of God is our gain, right? The love of God is our ultimate gain. And then thirdly, And let me just say, uh, finishing that, so if we are to learn to be liberal, we've got to learn to enjoy more of God's love. That will open our hands in a way that pleases God and is not motivated by some other reason that's human-centered, right? Number three, pursuing equity in liberality. So then Paul says in verse 12, for if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. For I mean not that other men be eased, and you to be burdened or afflicted, but by an equality of fairness, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, Jerusalem saints, that their abundance also may be a supply for your wants, Jerusalem saints, towards you, that there may be equality, equality. And then he gives the example of Exodus 16 that was read this morning. As it is written, he that had gathered much had gathered, had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. Now what kind of equality is Paul referring to here? Now the abundance of the church at Jerusalem may have been they were abundantly supplied spiritually because the gospel started there and it came out to the Corinthians or maybe some future date that they would then in return monetarily and be abundant toward them. So it would produce kind of an equality, right? Exodus 16, we know what happened there. Everybody had to go out and gather. Some gathered more, some gathered less. They measured it with an omer and miraculously either God worked it out or they did what? They shared it equally among them all. They shared it. That's the example Paul uses. See, those that had little, either God worked it out or they took the excess from the omer that had an omer and a half and put it in their omer and they had enough. Now the people that just had an omer after they gave to those who had less, they had enough. Everybody had enough. This sounds very close to socialism and communism, does it not? 
Is that what Paul is teaching? Now, before I answer that, because all of you are breathing real hard right now, I want to warn you against a danger that we all have. That because we don't think something should be so, or we look at society and see the evils of it, we assume it's wrong. And we come with predisposition and bias toward the text. And so if I ask you, tell me from the Bible why socialism is wrong. I just think it's wrong. That's dangerous. Because you're going to do that with other texts. Because you don't want it to be right. And I don't either. Well, what if it was right? We only determine it from what God says. And if there's freedom, otherwise then... We can talk about it. We're free to go either direction we want. So my answer is no. He's not teaching socialism. I I, I gather that you already were guessing that. But why? If you don't see it, then why are you believing it? So let me give you the reasons why I think he's not. Socialism or redistribution where the wealthy have to give their excesses to the poor to get them out of poverty so everybody has equal outcomes. That's what the culture is teaching. Equal outcomes, redistribution. I don't like it. I don't think it's right. But but why, Paul? Is this what Paul is teaching? No. Here's some reasons. One, it was according to what they had in verses 11 and 12. Now, the churches of Macedonia gave more than they had power to give. But Paul didn't call on Corinth to do that. He said, just what you have. That's not equal, is it? The churches of Macedonia went beyond their power. And gave everything. They were like the widow with two mites. She gave all her living. Paul's not calling them to do that. I'm not telling you to give everything you have. Just out of your surpluses. That's not equal, is it? They're not redistributing anything. Number two. It was as God prospered them. 1 Corinthians 16. When Paul first told them, he said, Every man lay up in store as God has prospered you. That's not equal. There's nothing equal about that at all. They were prospered and... Many different degrees. Third, it was to be as they purposed in their heart. Second Corinthians chapter 9, we'll get to that text. Now you may purpose differently than I do based on how God has prospered me. That's different, that's not equal, that's not redistribution. That is a voluntary offering as you purpose in your heart. Out of love. And then four, and this may put the cap on it. It was not that others be eased and they are burdened, verse 13. The word eased means not to lift them out of their poverty. And that's probably the nail in the coffin. Paul is saying, I'm not telling you to give what you have so that they're lifted out of poverty and you come out of your wealth and everybody's on the same equal footing. It's not what he's saying. And that verse proves it. See? Here's what John Calvin said of this text. This teaching is needed to refute fanatics who think that you have done nothing unless you strip yourself completely and put everything into a common fund. I acknowledge indeed that we are not bound to such an equality as would make it wrong for the rich to live more elegantly than the poor, but there must be an equality that nobody starves and nobody hoards the abundance at another's expense. What's happening in Jerusalem? They're starving. It's not everybody gets an iPhone, everybody drives the car I drive. It's they don't have basic necessities. What was the equality in Exodus 16? The equality of eating, of having enough food for the day. It was nothing beyond that. Charles Hodge says, 
Thus do the scriptures avoid, on the one hand, the injustice and destructive evils of agrarian communism by recognizing the right of property and making all almsgiving optional. Paul says this is optional. And on the other, the heartless disregard of the poor by inculcating the universal brotherhood of believers and the consequent duty of each to contribute of his abundance to relieve the necessities of the poor. Necessities. That's where there should be inequality. They don't have any food. At the same time, they inculcate on the poor the duty of self-support to the extent of their ability. What's the duty of self-support? Go work and provide for your needs. But something is happening in Jerusalem that's preventing that. Either they're deathly sick or they're being persecuted. It's not laziness and you give me your wealth so we can all be on the same field or the same level. So Paul is rejecting with one verse and three other ways I think he is, in verse 13, the idea that people are lifted out of poverty by another man's wealth. So what is this equality? He is calling for equality. What is it? First, it's an equality of participation. See? Every person participates. There's an equality of giving. Not the same level, not the same amount. And what usually happens on a volunteer offering like this? Well, the the people with a lot of children say, well, these single people, I mean, they got good jobs. And, you know, no children, just money coming in for one person. Well, they, they, I think they ought to do this. Well, then the single people, they say, well, you know, we're trying to save for a house. And we're just getting started. And I, I, need, a, I need a house to live in. Well, you, older people, you're established and you've been promoted, so your wages are higher than mine. And so we think you ought to do it. And then the retired people say, now, wait, wait a minute now. We don't even get promoted anymore. All we get is a cost of living increase. We don't even have an opportunity to get promoted. So we, we think you, all you other people should be doing the giving and not us. And then what happens is it's left for a few willing people to do it. Is that equality? No. Some of you here perhaps have not taken the first step even towards liberality. Because maybe you don't even give. So what's Paul calling for? A a learning to be liberal by a starting. He didn't even mention the tithe. Right? That's a good place to start. Jesus said, this ought you to have done and not leave the other undone. You should have been tithing, but don't leave this undone. But he mentions faith and the love of God is the root of whatever you give. Right? So he doesn't put the mandate of tithing on them. He just says... There needs to be inequality in your liberal giving, which is not that everybody gives the same amount. It's that everybody equally participates. Are you participating in your own profit? Because the love of God is overflowing with joy that releases your hand to other people. Because you know that if you need that promotion, He'll give it to you. You know. He said, seek me first, the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. You know He promises and He delivers just what He says. You know that, and your hands are open. This is the only way it happens in a way that pleases God. Now, remember, Paul is not calling anybody to be afflicted and give till it hurts so other people can have something. He's calling on a willing liberality 
that finishes the task and that has an equal participation because there's what? An equal willingness, right? That's the equality he's asking for. If all are equally willing, although all don't have equal resources, if all are equally participating, although all don't have equal material possessions, and Paul is not calling on that, then what happens? There's a liberal, liberal gift. What if it's not very much? It'll be liberal, right? Was it liberal with the churches of Macedonia? It could not have been very much. But he said the abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. And yet there was probably pennies there. Why? Because they were all equally participating and willing. Because they were all captivated by the grace of God and His love. Because they were genuine, true lovers of Jesus. Now listen, if you have been missing it on this, it doesn't mean you're not real or genuine. It just means you need to look again to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. How for your sake he became poor, although he was rich. Left his home in glory to take on the form of a servant so that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. Isn't that glorious? So the first step to experiencing the riches of His grace is to humble yourself and trust Jesus and be a follower of His today. As we pray, we bid you to make that profession. Let's pray. Lord, Your love is is great. It is satisfying. It is joyful. But we confess to You, You know our hearts, that so often it's not our experience. Often the the things of the world, the cares, the troubles, the riches, the lust of other things, enter in, they choke the word, and the love of God is not experienced in a way that produces liberality. So Lord, we just first uh, pray the confession of our sins and our repentance this morning, that we want to turn from that. And we know if, if we don't do that now, when will it happen? When will we confess and repent? So just as a church, Lord, we confess that if it applies to us, We know it doesn't apply to everyone here, uh, but if it applies, Lord, we confess it for uh, things of the world capturing our hearts that prevents us from participating equally and being equally willing. And so we pray you would fill us with your love in such a way through the Word and by the Spirit that we would have more of the joy of Christ, that it would remain, and that our joy would be more full, and that would release our hearts. resources, our time, our lives more into your service, understanding our responsibilities, understanding what Paul said. This is not to make others have the same outcomes. And Lord, we ask you this, that we would be finishers, not just finishers of the task, but finishers of the race set before us with joy. We need this, Lord, desperately in a world that there's so many joys, some lawful, some unlawful but many things to distract us. So, Lord, be our strength, be our help, be our joy, be all that you are for us, and thank you above all that our confession now is based on the finished work of Christ. So no amount of liberal giving, no amount of turning to you tomorrow, no amount of more reading, more praying, more loving will atone for sin, for Jesus has satisfied your law 
and the wrath of God forever, for which we rejoice, we rest, we find peace and calm delight. And out of that delight, may we learn to be liberal. In Jesus' name, amen.